Yeah, well, good morning and welcome. I agree with Lawrence. I thought it was like just going to be me and the sleepers and Lawrence, and <laughs> we were going to just sit down. And So it's great to see everybody on this holiday weekend. For those of you I don't know, my name's Deirdre Chance. I'm part of the ministry team here at Twin Cities Church, and thanks to the elders periodically throughout the year, I get to come up and preach with you, like preach to you. Um, <clears throat> there's a Q&A at the end, so, you know, be taking notes, be ready to make some comments, because it's always awkward when you don't. <laughs> um, like Lauren said, we've been working through the Pentateuch. We started last fall, and this summer we are on Leviticus. So, um, you know, it just seems if you kind of, just from a high view, kind of glance at modern America, Christianity, what should be our view towards the law, to, towards Leviticus. And it seems like there's really two views that we as modern Christians can have towards all these legal codes. The first view is like, we just ignore it, right? Like it's part of the Old Testament. It's really not valid anymore. It certainly doesn't seem useful. So let's just ignore it. Let's just, that's where Lawrence joked, right? Like the reading through the Bible in a year plan kind of comes to a halt here at Leviticus or certainly gets jumped over. So that can be one view. We just want to ignore it. The other view is sort of the other end of the spectrum, is that we should be legalistically following this, right? And the idea is it's in the Bible. The Bible is the word of God, so I should follow it, right? I should celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday, eat kosher food. It does kind of seem like different laws get picked and chosen. I'm not sure why. <laughs> um, if you've done the message of the Bible class that George wrote, this may sound familiar. This is the point that he makes in it. And I would submit that really, neither view is correct. But if neither view is correct, then what should be our approach to all these legal codes in the Pentateuch? Like, what was the author, capital A, God's intention with all these legal codes? What is the message? Why were they included in the Pentateuch? What's the message for the reader? Well, Lawrence, I think, did a great job pointing out last week what Galatians 3 states. It says how the law was given because of sins, right? As sins increased, the law increased. Galatians 3 also points out that the law was to be a guardian to guide the people until Christ came. And I think it's helpful, too, as we kind of keep that in mind from Galatians, but also, as we look at the Pentateuch, especially all those laws, all those legal codes and ordinances, to kind of look at the Pentateuch in three stages. First stage, before Mount Sinai or on the way to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was definitely a significant place and events. And then after Mount Sinai, leaving Mount Sinai. So if we look at that first stage, on the way to Mount Sinai, right? Last spring, we went through the book of Exodus. We saw how when the people, right, they had been enslaved in Egypt and they're freed and as they're leaving, they're miraculously freed, huge display of God's power. I mean, it could not be interpreted any other way except for that God had clearly intervened and freed them from slavery and they're leaving slavery in Egypt. They're on their way to Mount Sinai. And what does the text record? The text records clearly five accounts of the people leaving slavery in Egypt on the way to the mountain to worship, their grumblings and complainings against God. 
who had just miraculously freed them, right? At the Red Sea, there's no water, there's no food, complaining, grumbling, lapses of faith. And then they finally make it to the mountain, to Mount Sinai, right? This is where God first said that back when he called Moses, back when he was appearing to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I'm going to free my people so they can be free to worship me on this mountain. So right from the start, we know they're supposed to be free to come and meet with God, but at Mount Sinai, quite a few pivotal changes happen, and they're really tragic pivotal pivotal changes because the people refuse to draw near to God. So Exodus 19 um, and into 20, we see two accounts where God is calling the people to come close and meet him at the mountain. They're supposed to draw close when the trumpet grows louder. And after the first account where they refuse to draw close and meet God, after that first account, we get the recording of the Ten Commandments. After the second account, where again they refuse to draw near, we get 11 chapters of legal codes, pretty much straight legal ordinances from Exodus 20 to Exodus 31. So those, the change that we see happen at Mount Sinai is as they refuse to draw near, we get this bulk of legal codes. And that from Exodus 20 to um, 31, that, that second part of that, I think it's like 25 to 31 if you're interested in any of this nerdy stuff. <laughs> it's what scholars call the priestly codes. And that's kind of significant. The priestly codes, right, they're all about the tabernacle and the altars and the role of priests. But that is also significant because it shows a change that happens to the nation. They go from being a kingdom of priests to being a kingdom with priests, right? They wouldn't have needed all those ordinances, all those laws about the priests if they would have been a kingdom of priests. So as they're drawing near to the mountain, Mount Sinai, God says, right, you are my treasured possession. I will be your God. I will dwell with you, and you will be a kingdom of priests. But then when they shrink back and refuse to meet God— they were supposed to be this kingdom of priests, like, right, they would be the mediator between all the other nations and God. But when they shrink back, now they need mediators. The people need mediators between them and God. So they go from being a kingdom of priests to being a kingdom with priests. So two, two results at Mount Sinai, this bulk of laws and this shift from being a kingdom of priests to a kingdom with priests. And then after they leave Mount Sinai on their way to their promised land, Numbers records again, they're grumbling and complainings. We see five clear accounts of grumblings and complainings against God as they leave Mount Sinai. And so really, if we look at this big picture before, at Mount Sinai, after Mount Sinai, we see the laws are there because the Israelites, I'm not sure what verb to use, like they refused to be content, they just weren't content, they weren't satisfied with God, they didn't trust, right? They lacked trust and faith in God as evidenced by their grumblings, also their idolatries, right? We have that 
idolatrous orgy of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. Lawrence mentioned they were still worshiping goat demons at Mount Sinai. Um, And I think Numbers 14 really gives us a good snapshot of what is going on here. Numbers, again, it's after they've left Mount Sinai. They're about to go into the promised land, right? They send in the spies. The spies are like, yeah, the land is great, but we can't take it because those people are way too strong and too powerful. And in Numbers 14.10, Joshua and Caleb admonish the people, and they say, if the Lord delights in us, he will give us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. But the people didn't trust that God delights in them, right? We see that evidenced by their grumbling, their seeking after other sources, their idolatry for pleasure and for help. And a little later in Numbers 14, in verses 20 through 23, we get the Lord's commentary on everything. In Numbers 14, 20, and 23, it says, The Lord declares, and yet you have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice. Right? Like it shows God's commentary. He sees there are five accounts of grumblings and complainings against him on the way to Mount Sinai. The five accounts of his grumblings and complaining against him from Mount Sinai that demonstrate their lack of faith in God, their lack of faith in his care for them, their lack of faith in his abundant provision for them, their lack of faith that he delights in them. So we have laws like we read in today, that we read today in Leviticus 19 and 26, right? Those laws are given to guide the nation, guide their business practices between them, between the poor in the midst, even with sojourners and foreigners who are living near them, right? These laws were to help guide their stubborn and hard hearts, specifically in regards to good and right behavior in business and um, work relationships. But these laws, they also reveal their sinfulness because they wouldn't need these laws if they weren't already practicing these things. Like, right, obviously they're not being honest in their business dealings with their scales and their ephahs, and obviously they are being selfish and miserly and hoarding in their agrarian fields, in their agrarian businesses. That's why God has to give them these laws. You know, if they they had believed, if they had trusted, that God would abundantly provide for them, if they really believed that God delighted in them and would take care of them, they'd be generous, they'd be honest, they wouldn't need these laws. If they believed and trusted God delighted in them, we wouldn't see these accounts of their grumbling and their idolatry and their grumblings again. But these laws are given to help teach and show them that they can be generous, that they don't have to be miserly because God is generous. God does delight in them. 
You know, and these legal codes, they remind me a lot of laws today, right? Like we have laws of not texting when driving, right? We had a first law that said no texting when driving. But then people found ways around it, and so then we came up with, or lawmakers came up with, the hands-free law, right? Which was really just a law that said, when we said no texting and driving, what we meant was keep your hands off your device, <laughs> hands-free texting. And right, the intention is to guide people to be safe, to save lives, to prevent accidents. But there's always ways around it. Like if somebody's, like if their heart is really set on, I got to keep up with my texts, I got to keep up with social media, right? They'll find ways around the law. And so then we make up more laws as people find ways around the first law. And as the first law falls short, because people are still selfish and sinful, we come up with more and more laws. Often, seems like almost in every situation, like the numbers of laws we end up getting can get pretty ridiculous. We can end up getting more and more laws because laws don't change the heart, right? And it's not just laws about texting, right? It's tax laws and business laws and criminal justice laws. Like they go on and on that it, I can't even understand them. Like, you need a four-year degree to be able to navigate the bulk of all these laws. We end up getting more and more laws today back with the Israelites because laws don't change hearts. Laws do, though, are meant to guide to good and right behavior. So the laws in Leviticus, they're not to be ignored but they're not to be legalistically followed. It was meant to be a guide for good and right behavior and to make the people of God distinct from all the other neighboring people around them. But the law was always to be followed out of faith, out of a trust and dependence on God, right? Like, they didn't have the indwelling spirit. These were ways for them to to act, to behave, and to understand what good and right behavior that God wanted was, right? It was a way of worship, but it was always supposed to be driven by faith. The law never made you righteous. Faith is always what made you righteous. So the laws in the Pentateuch were to help guide behaviors, like to show this is what loving God and loving other looks like. It was hard for them to discern. They didn't discern it. If they could do this, they would be living out loving God and loving others' behaviors. And you know, behaviors are an interesting thing. It is harder to change your feelings than it is to change your behaviors, right? Um, so clinical research shows this, that it is a lot easier to change our behavior, to decide to do what aligns with what we believe is right and to do it. There's some other part of our facility that can choose to do what is good and right, that we believe is good and right, apart from our feelings. And what we find out is as one changes behaviors, because it aligns with what you believe is good and right, as you find strategies to do that, what you find is your feelings change as well. That's the basis for a lot of mental health strategies today for coping with anxiety, depression, substance use disorder. It's learning to still behave in ways that aligns with what you believe 
what you know is good and right, even if you don't feel like it. Because what you realize is like, those feelings don't get to master me. There's another part of me that gets to drive and make the decisions. And how much more true is that for us if we are believers in Christ Jesus, right? We can do this even more. We can renew our minds in the truth and do what is right because we know how much God has done for us. God the Father sent God the Son, Christ, to take on this human condition, to suffer for us, to take the wrath of God on at the cross so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be forgiven. Right? Christ takes on our humanity and our suffering, and we get to take on his righteousness through faith in Christ. Like, God declares us, this is a declaration true if we believe in Christ Jesus. He declares us already holy and blameless by his grace, thanks to faith in Christ Jesus. And on top of all that, right, through faith in Christ, not only do we get Christ's righteousness, not only are we declared holy and blameless, but Ephesians says that we are positionally seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Like, we have Christ's authority on top of all that to approach the throne of God boldly, thanks to Christ. And if that weren't all enough, on top of all that, we also have his indwelling spirit. That same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead indwells us. If any people's group should know that God delights in us, it should be us as modern Christians. As we know what is true, we may have different feelings, different thoughts might come at us, we, things coming from the world, the enemy attacking, things will feel in our flesh, yet we can still behave in a way that is right and true. That is how and why Christ came and fulfilled the law. The law was to guide as a guardian for good and right behavior until Christ came. And now we can do good and right behavior, like being generous, like being honest in our business practices because of the generous, abundant, sufficient, and completed work of Christ and because of his indwelling spirit that dwells within us. So doing right behavior, it's not gonna make, like being generous, being honest, that is not going to make you any more in right standing because Christ's work was sufficient, right? It's not going to make you any more righteous than celebrating the Sabbath on Saturday or eating kosher or one of my favorites, like, right, they were only supposed to wear um, material or clothing of one type of material. I really like a little lycra in my clothing. <laughs> but so doing any of that, like, you can do that if you want. Just do it out of faith. But none of it's going to make you more righteous because it's always about faith. But on the other hand, we all were created to do good works, right? That's what Ephesians 2.10 says, that God prepared good works in advance for us to do. But we do it by faith. And so I think, you know, in this issue with right behavior and money, 
I think Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 really gets to the issue of this idea of right behavior with money and faith. Because it states that the love of money is the opposite of being content and confident that God is your helper. Often, when we aren't generous, when we aren't honest, when we feel like I better shortcut some things in business, when we're selfish, when we're miserly, it's because we're really struggling to trust that God's going to take care of us. Often it's because we fear either maybe he really doesn't have all this power, or maybe we fear he really does have this power, maybe he really isn't that concerned about me. So we turn to other things. We will. You'll go to other things. We all will. We'll turn to other things for protection and help and pleasures and joy. But we can renew our mind on God's truth and the indwelling spirit to guide us to right behavior rather than letting our feelings like fear drive our behaviors. And when we find ourselves struggling, which we're all going to be at that place at some point, at various times, to varying degrees, when we find ourselves struggling in that, right? Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. As believers, when we find ourselves struggling, we can ask God for help. We can ask him, help me to be more generous. Help me to be more honest. Help me to trust that you really are taking care of me. Help me to trust that you really do delight in me. And when we ask God for help, that's a posture of faith, right? That's depending on him. That's faith. Kind of that simple, I want to say. (laughs) Um, Personally, I would also say that I do not consider myself a naturally thankful, generous person. Like, this has been an area where I've really had to ask God for help in my life. Um, And just a little sidebar, like, if you are a naturally generous person, or you're just maybe farther along on this faith journey that this is just an area where God is really at work, like, I just want to encourage you, like, keep on doing that because it encourages people like me. And if it is, like, just something that comes naturally easy to you, right, where do we get our natural gifts and talents anyway? They're ultimately from God. So whether it's, you know, God has to work supernaturally, gets to work, I don't know, has to work, gets to work supernaturally or it naturally, like, it's still from God. But I know, like, the people I see who are naturally generous, and I see them being generous, like, that fans into flame what God, this, God the Spirit is doing in my own life, and it encourages me. So just a little sidebar, if you're like, yeah, this just comes naturally, like, keep on doing that, because it encourages others that it doesn't come naturally, too. But I can pinpoint some key times in my life where God has had to teach me to be generous. The first one that I can really remember, I would have been about 26, I would have been a believer about seven years, and we had just moved to Minnesota, 
had our second child. We just bought a hobby farm. In short, we bit off like way more than we could chew. <laughs> so I had two little kiddos. And I remember, um, well, let me back up. I remember, first of all, that I was complaining a lot. I was complaining in my heart. I was complaining out loud. I know my husband certainly wasn't a joy to be around me, probably not my two little kids either. You know, I just, I just wasn't happy and just had this grumbling, complaining attitude <laughs> like the Israelites. I remember I was up, I don't know if it was late at night or early in the morning, taking care of my baby at the time. And I remember just like admitting that to God, like, I don't really like who I am. This isn't what I want to be. And it was one of those times I could hear God say pretty audibly to me, like, you need to kill it with thankfulness. And I think that was the first time in my Christian life that I really made intentional efforts to be thankful, to spend time seeing how God had been generous to me and trying to be thankful. Um, and then when I was teaching, you know, I was another time I was really busy doing a lot of things, pouring out. I'd come home. It's like, I didn't want to be generous or giving to anyone. I wanted everybody to serve me. And that's just a passage in the Bible really about thankfulness really convicted me again. And it was God telling me again, like, you need to work on this thankfulness. So on my commute, I would not let, me think, let myself think about work or anything that would make my job easier or better improve. Like, I might, well, not the whole time, but on my commute, I would be like, from this physical location to that physical location, I put these constraints in place. I was only going to spend time thinking about being thankful. And it was hard, like, you know, it was good. I kind of had those physical locations because my mind would want to go like, this is how I could make my job better. This is what I could do to make it better. I'm like, nope, from this point to this point, I'm only reflecting on how God has given to me, how generous he has been to me, how thankful. And so I'm still not where I would like to be, but I know I'm not where I used to be. Like I can see the spirit at work in my life, and that's a praise. I practiced this a bunch of times, and I still get teared up. But then my most recent one, um, where I just really, my eyes have been opened of how much I have to be thankful for is with my sister's accident, um, which many of you know, but probably all of you don't know. She's currently paralyzed from the armpits down, and um, I've gotten to go and take care of her a couple times. Um, I bet all of us have things to be thankful for that we don't realize. Like, if my arms and my legs and my back are sore, well, great, because I have arms and legs and a back that can work. Like, I can breathe, I can eat. Probably all of us have things that we have given to us by God that we could be more thankful for. And then the last point. Sorry, I haven't cried this hard in a while up here, so that's good. Um, too bad I don't have any tissues, but okay, moving on. <laughs> the last point, real quick, that I wanted to share was um, a couple of summers ago. I think actually it was maybe last summer. I remember I was praying to God for like something big. I think it was like someone's health again. And I kind of noticed myself pausing. Like I didn't want to ask God for that because maybe he wouldn't give it and I would be disappointed. And then I like kind of like I realized it. And so I stopped and I was thinking like... Why do I think God won't give that to me? And I realized I had really, I was really transferring onto God things I had absorbed and learned from others growing up. Of people I've 
lived with, worked with, rubbed elbows with throughout my growing up years that God had given abundance to, but they really weren't very generous. And I had transferred that onto God, and all of a sudden I was like, well, why would I let the broken, hurting people of the world define God, rather than letting God's chosen way to define him, the Bible, define him, you know, right? So I started to make intentional efforts to to really think about God's character as well, right? Like passages where God metaphorically is like the father of the prodigal son, who is just like shockingly generous and merciful. And um, so just learning to pray to God based on how he has chosen to reveal himself. And I do find myself like asking God, trusting his generosity more, but a little caveat with that, um, my hope is not in what he's going to give or not give, right? Like, my hope is in him and his character. So it's not a disappointment, really, whether he gives or not, because my hope isn't based on the gift. It's based on God and his generate, generous and abundant provision. So, I don't know, I kind of said a lot there in the stories, but just, you know, like, times where we need to intentionally renew our minds and maybe put some efforts, if you're not naturally generous, to really think and reflect on how generous God has been to you. And then allowing God's word (laughs) to define God and not the brokenness and pain we experience in this world and just keeping our hope on God and his generosity and his character. So let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your generosity. Thank you that the kingdom of God is an abundant kingdom, that you have abundantly blessed us, that as we read through the Bible, we see time and time again of your relentless mercy and faithfulness to humanity. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen us to trust this more, to trust in your delight and your abundant provision for us. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us to also extend this abundance to others. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, and we just pray all these things through Jesus Christ's name. Amen.